This is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca and Tara and I are really excited to have with us today Ian Kennedy. He is a resident of Erie Beach, Ontario. He's an educator and journalist with a passion for storytelling. Ian is currently a writer for the Hockey News as well as Yahoo Sports and has been writing about sports for the past decade for the Chatham-Kent Sports Network, a sports media outlet he founded in 2011. His stories have also appeared in the Globe and Mail, Outdoor Canada, and Canadian Horse Journal. Ian's debut title, On Account of Darkness, Shining Light on Race and Sport, will be published this month in May by British Columbia's Tidewater Press. Welcome, Ian, to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Ian, I loved the moment. So your book, On Account of Darkness, I loved the moment when it was revealed, the title was revealed, like how the 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 book got its title. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the book? Absolutely, yeah. So the title, um, my area... Of course, we are in Chatham-Kent, Ontario, Canada, and um, we have a really rich history here of uh, the Underground Railroad and Black history, uh, but we also have two Indigenous communities, and uh, through World War II, we had a number of Japanese internment camps here. So a diverse history, but also a troubled history in that regard. Uh, But the, the book title itself, On Account of Darkness, comes from one particular sports team, uh, the Chatham Colored All-Stars. The All-Stars were the first ever all-black baseball team to win a provincial championship in Canada when they did that in 1934. So, of course, at a time when we wouldn't uh, anticipate uh, an all-black team to even be welcomed into sport, and, of course, they weren't in most cases. Uh, When they were only an out away from winning that provincial championship, the umpires on field called the game on account of darkness, despite the fact that it was 4.30 in the afternoon in the early fall. So broad daylight, but uh, talking to the descendants of that team and listening to the uh, recorded interviews with some of those players, it's a foregone conclusion that the only reason it was too dark in the umpire's eyes is because there was nine black players on the field. So that's the title. And, uh, that's the grand reveal. But the 1934 Colored All-Stars were kind of the uh, catalyst for this entire book because they've been shunned and denied entry into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and not really given their place in history. But uh, the book itself kind of goes through that history from uh, black settlement here in Chatham-Kent to colonization, uh, taking away the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and, and Lenape people here. And, uh, of course, that uh, the role that sport played in all of that, which is not uh, insignificant in any way. And sport kind of is this uh, lens in the book to look at our Canadian ambivalence towards racism or our denial of the history that uh, has founded this country. And uh, it's, it's not as much about scores and results and recalling you know the actual ins and outs of the games as it is looking at the families the people and those issues whether it be indigenous youth that learn sport at residential schools or 
Japanese internees playing, uh, Japanese Canadian internees playing sport in their their work camps um, to those first all black baseball teams or notable black athletes and coaches. So it's it really is a book uh, about that perseverance, about uh, how sport can uphold racist ideology, and uh, yeah, I, I hope it uh, starts a conversation, I guess, on this topic or makes racism or anti-racism and anti-oppressive work accessible to some people that might not have otherwise uh, considered that topic. Well, it's funny because Tara and I, as we were reading the book together, we kept saying, oh my gosh, did you know about this? Can you believe this? There were so many things in the book that surprised both of us. And, you know, Tara's Canadian. So, I mean, you know, even that was a surprise. Some of those things were a surprise to her as well. So... Uh, my question, though, is how and when did you decide to chronicle BIPOC sports stories in your area specifically? Obviously, it's really a rich area for sports information, sports history, I should say. And I'm curious, I'm going to throw this in, too, to ask about your research. How in the world did you start to research? Because what you dug up is amazing. I can't even believe it. And then I was wondering, too, how easy or difficult was it to find a publisher for this book? Yeah, so I have been writing about sports locally, as you said in the intro there, uh, since 2011. And throughout that time, you know, I, I did pick up stories about some of our local athletes. I learned about Fergie Jenkins, who uh, Fergie was the first ever Canadian inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's going to have a statue of, of himself uh, erected outside of Wrigley Field, a famous Chicago Cubs baseball player. Um, and his father played for those 1934 uh, Chatham Colored All-Stars. Uh, I learned about Ed Penance, who's from Wapool Island First Nation here, and he learned how to play baseball uh, at Shingwok Residential School and then became the first quote-unquote full-blooded, that's a whole other issue in itself, a uh, controversial term that uh, if you read the book you'll, you'll pick up, but he became that first ever Indigenous player in Major League Baseball in 1903. Um, and I'd always known about people like Bob Azumi, who's a great Canadian bass fisherman, uh, TV personality, etc., who was a Japanese-Canadian man whose father came through internment and settled here because while building roads in Rondo Provincial Park, he fell in love with the area. So I, I knew about a lot of the stories, but uh, I didn't really uh, get too deep into it until the pandemic, which is probably the same for a lot of people. But storytelling has been uh, kind of a part of my family life forever, which again is talked about in the book that my grandparents taught me to love stories. Uh, they were people that fled communism in Europe uh, following World War II and settled in Canada. And I would sit at their table every week uh, and they would begin this this beautiful waltz back and forth, uh, changing who you know led the story as they went. And every week they would tell me the exact same stories over and over and over again. And I thought I had them perfectly memorized. Uh, I promised myself I would write them down. And when my grandparents passed, I realized that the the nuance of their stories had disappeared to me. I had lost them. I didn't know when the pause would come, the mischievousness that my grandmother would have in the story, um, the, the running jokes that my grandpa would like to throw in there and smile as he did it. You know, I lost those things from time to time. And when I discovered these other stories, um, stories of the Chatham Colored All-Stars or, 
you know, Mel and Herb Wakabayashi, two men that were born in Japanese internment camps and went on to do wonderful things. I, I didn't understand why I hadn't heard the stories before. Uh, I grew up 10 minutes from Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a famous underground railroad terminal here. And I never visited it in my life. Uh, I didn't know what North Buxton, uh, another underground railroad terminal here was until university. And I had never heard of a residential school uh, until my, again, fifth year of university. So I just, I didn't understand why these stories weren't being told to me, uh, why I hadn't heard them. So <laughs> your question, you know, how I decided was as soon as I realized all these things, it was, it was important. Um, and the pandemic gave me time to move from knowing bits and pieces about individual little stories to really chronicling um, the history and digging deeper into it because there were no live sports, right? So I got to take the time to dive into history itself. Um, and that, that the, the other aspect of that is that I've always had an interest in social justice, in uh, challenging the culture of sports, whether it's masculinity or racism. Uh, and I've loved celebrating underrepresented groups and LGBTQ plus athletes, women in sport. Um, so yeah, I got, I got a time to, to sit and do that. And, uh, the pandemic definitely provided some challenges with that research. Uh, libraries were closed. Museums were closed. Um, some of the older individuals I was trying to interview, um, had either passed or weren't, uh, as comfortable with technology to do these interviews via Skype or phone or zoom, even they, you know, they needed help. So it was, uh, the research portion was a challenge. Uh, it took a lot of digging. It took a lot of uh, time. It took a lot of me convincing, uh, you know, a museum uh, curator to let me into a back room alone without anyone else during a pandemic so that I could dig through archives and, and find information. So the how and when uh, the pandemic pretty much gave me that opportunity. But uh, as for your publisher question, that actually... Uh, came about in a really, I don't know if I believe in fate, but it was definitely right place, right time situation where I was sitting in the Black Mecca Museum in Chatham doing exactly as we just said, researching. At this point, I thought I was going to be writing a self-published book that would be uh, maybe interesting to some local historians, but not many other people. And, um, you know, that might have been my own naive nature at that point but uh, I was sitting there researching the Chatham Colored All-Stars of all things and the executive director of the Black Mecca Museum received an email while I was sitting in the museum researching from Tidewater Press asking if anyone that they knew was writing about the All-Stars story because it fascinated them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Sam, Sam the, the director uh, looked up at me and said you know, Ian, I just got this email. Uh, you're writing about it. And I said, yeah, I'm writing about this. And so we sat down at the computer and emailed them back. And about five days later, I'm in a meeting, a, a virtual meeting, of course, at the time with Tidewater Press. And we, we talked it through. We saw some writing samples and uh, a book was born. So it was, it was such a, a just, I don't even know how to describe the I know that so many people struggle for so long to find a publisher and had I wanted to do that myself, I probably would have been the same way. And uh, it, 
it just came about that I was sitting in the museum when an email came in. So that that is actually the story. Okay, yeah, wow. right time, right place is amazing <laughs> because I can't imagine a better story than that. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the things I want to mention to all of our listeners too is when I read when I started reading the book. I mean, even in the beginning, the intro that grabbed me, and I think I even sent you a text message, and I just said, "Oh my gosh!" Just the just that opening part was just so beautiful. And I knew I was in for a great ride with this book. And I want to tell everybody that if you love sports, you're going to love this book. And if you aren't a big sports fan, it doesn't matter. Pick up this book because what I loved is the style and the way that you did this. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about your style choice and drawing parallels to your own life experiences because it absolutely grabs the reader and keeps you invested through the whole story. I mean, the story itself is great. All the stories are great, but just that parallel to your own life, it was amazing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that wasn't as much of my, I guess there was some stylistic. I love writing um, and I haven't always loved, I love writing sports stories, but I haven't always loved reading nonfiction. So I wanted to create a way where my love for storytelling, uh, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, came through and tried to tried to show that there was more to these issues than, you know, how we politicize everything and, and talk about it that way. I wanted to show the people and the feelings in them, but uh, I'm white. So writing a book on, on racism is a little bit, uh, uh, it shouldn't be me. Um, they're not my stories. So I personally approached it as a preservationist of the stories, not as the storyteller per se, even though I love storytelling. I wanted to, as I said, you know, I, I watched my grandparents' stories disappear. So I wanted to preserve them. But as I started doing that by, you know, hundreds of hours of interviewing people, uh, descendants, athletes themselves, family members. Uh, some of the black and indigenous leaders that I was speaking to really started to guide me through the process. And uh, one of the main suggestions that kept coming up was, as I would tell them about, you know, never being to Uncle Tom's cabin or growing up in my hometown of Wallaceburg, where we were taught at every single turn that white people were superior to indigenous people and indigenous people were this and that. And, um, they, they, they thought that that was important. Um, as I said, the, the leaders in those communities and they said, it's crucial to place yourself within the story. They thought that the journey that I was describing to them of my own ignorance and, uh, being raised steeped in racism and, being a part of the systems of oppression throughout my youth was important to know and important for other people to, to see that we're all in this interwoven, wonderful story of life that uh, has many horrible periods of time. Um, but uh, not to be a person outside of the story or retelling it, but as an active participant in the story. Um, Every teacher I had, like I said, every coach told me those racist jokes. Uh, I watched fight after fight in my schools, uh, always indigenous versus white uh, person. You know, I didn't know any black people growing up. The only black man I knew 
uh, was the custodian at my elementary school, who's Jarvis Cook. He's in the book. Um, you know, we had a wonderful relationship, and but I didn't even think about, um, you know, that the thoughts of what he had to go through as a human being never crossed my mind. And uh, little did I know that, uh, you know, 30 years later, I would be talking to his daughter, trying to arrange an interview with this man. And, and she would say, I think that my dad said he knew you from elementary school. And it turns out, you know, that uh, he taught me how to do a spinorama with a bucket and a mop in his hands. <laughs> so, uh, you know, placing myself in that story was just something that the, uh, like I said, the leaders of the black community here, the leaders of our indigenous communities really said was important. And, um, so it wasn't necessarily a stylistic choice of mine as much as it was uh, me hoping to listen and learn and participate in being actively anti-racist or creating an anti-oppressive text that could uh, respond to those communities, not as much, you know, telling the story myself. Well, it, it works spectacularly. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, so Ian, um, Rebecca mentioned this earlier, so I found not only were her and I discussing the book as we went along in our reading process, but I found myself a couple of times in the mornings when I was driving my boys to school, they're, um, oh my gosh, how old are they, 16 and 18, and I would be like, gentlemen, I have to tell you this, because I'm like, I don't think you know about it, maybe you do, hopefully you do, cause, but I'm like, I don't, and I need to tell you this. And we did that uh, several mornings going to school. And one of those things that I learned from your book was about sundown towns. Well, in Ontario. So it's a relatively new term for me. But I thought it was a term that was an American term. So I didn't realize that these towns and unwritten rules actually existed in Ontario as well. Can you talk about a few things from your book that might surprise and dismay Canadians about our history? I think everything's going to dismay Canadians or should. Uh, <laughs> I think so too. You, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, uh, there's so many aspects of it. You know, Sundown Town, like I said, my hometown is documented as being one of those. And it's been hotly contested that uh, the white residents of, of our community don't believe that it was. But of course, Sundown Towns were, of course, towns where Black or Indigenous or Japanese Canadian people uh, weren't welcomed after dark. And uh those were enforced often, sometimes through actual bylaws, which might have been more uh, true to the United States. But uh, in Canada, that could have been through redlining or, you know, realtors not selling homes or bringing people into the towns. It could have been intimidation, uh, which is depicted in the book as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it, what it's going to surprise people might be as with that story, it could be how it was one black man, a Canadian football legend named Rolly Miles, was the person that actually ended that through his advocacy and standing up to an entire room of white leaders and service club members and saying, you know, either you change this rule or I'm leaving town because you brought me here to speak to you. He was brought in to, you know, talk all about his, his amazing football career and, uh, he was willing to give that away to change the rule. And sure enough, within a year, the first black family moved into the town. And 
it was such a monumental turning point that uh, that I had never known about again uh, growing up in that town. But I think like many Canadians, uh, unless you're in one of these, you know, unless you're a black indigenous Japanese Canadian person, you live in those communities, you're going to be surprised by a number of aspects. Uh, just like you said, I had a reviewer that read the book from the United States comment that they had never heard of residential schools. And I know that that's really come into the forefront of discussion in Canada recently, but perhaps there it's that we don't understand the role that something like hockey played in residential schools. Um, you know, we think of hockey as Canada's game and so did, so did people in charge of that. So did the government, so did the church, so did colonizers, which is why when they introduced hockey to residential schools, it was to make indigenous youth feel more Canadian. It was to, you know, give that Canadian identity to indigenous youth. And when, Indigenous youth started seeing it as respite, as a, a, a point of freedom in those institutions or facilities, because I hate calling them schools even. Um, they would take it away as discipline. And that was, uh, you know, the, the way that sport has been used to uphold uh, the systems of oppression that we face, I think is in, incredibly powerful. Or uh, Japanese Canadians, I mean, that's a, a history of, of forced internment and uh, force being forcefully dispossessed from their homes that Canada's really only recently come to reckon with. And I mean, I don't think that most Canadians know how that all happened, that after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Japanese Canadians, they had their homes confiscated, their, their boats confiscated, their cars confiscated, and the Canadian government sold all of those items to pay to forcefully in turn Japanese Canadians thousands of miles away from their homes and that uh, you know following the war these people who had been doctors and, and engineers and, and business people and teachers were you know then without a home and, and found themselves working on farms in communities like Chatham Kent uh, which is what brought you know uh, like Vicky Sunahara two-time Olympic gold medalist, seven-time world champion, uh, gold medal winner, hockey player from Canada. Her father uh, came to Chatham-Kent right after uh, the war as well and settled here. And her family was raised here. Uh, that's how Bob Azumi uh, came here. That's how the Wakabayashi brothers came to be here. And it's it's just a an unspoken part of history. And I think that's what most Canadians are going to be surprised at in this book is that there are so many unspoken parts of history and it will be interesting to see how sport actually ties to that. So everything will, will surprise, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a, so I had so many moments throughout the, even the Bob Azumi, uh, when you first started talking about him, about his father, the name I like, I didn't connect it, but I'm like the name it's, I'm like, the name is familiar. And then all of a sudden I went, Oh my God, it's Bob Azumi. And I went to my husband. I'm like, Bob Azumi is in the book. I'm, my husband will be reading the book. I loved the book. So um, so now I want to move on to lacrosse. It's one of my favorite sports. I haven't played it. I, I don't intend to. I am far too wimpy. But my youngest started playing in grade four. And 
we love the sport. It's a great sport. And I really enjoyed the parts of your book that discussed um, lacrosse when it was traditionally played and how it's moved forward. I was hoping you could briefly discuss the history of lacrosse a little bit and where you see the game headed in the future. Sure. Yeah, that's, of course, lacrosse, you know, as we call it, um, was not really lacrosse. That's, of course, a French term, right? So Mm -hmm. um, when we look back to it in in the book, we talk a lot about it as Bagataway or uh, the creator's game. And we discuss it as being medicine in Indigenous communities. It was a spiritual game, a spiritual practice that served many purposes outside of our current understanding of sport, which is a colonized version of sport where it's everything's competitive. There must be a winner. There must be a loser. We don't play it for health, for our mental health as much as we, we could or should. It's not as much of a community connector. It's a community divider pitting one person against the other. Um, so like many things, you know, lacrosse was colonized by white settlers. Uh, in this case, in Canada, uh, the main perpetrator of that was a man named William Beers. Uh, he was, you know, of the, the ilk of men at the time that uh, was looking to remove all things indigenous from Canada. So you can tie him to the Ryersons of the world. And uh, through Beers, the development of box lacrosse, indoor lacrosse, which is the predominant version we play in Canada now, was popularized. And of course, because um, in Canada, we had an explosion of hockey love at that time, arenas were popping up and people were looking for other ways to utilize arenas in the warm weather. So Beers got this idea that he could make a game played in on arena floors. And so, you know, again, tying it logistically to Uh, Hockey made lacrosse instantly more Canadian, which is why eventually uh, Beers himself self-proclaimed lacrosse as Canada's national sport. Uh, Didn't actually happen until many, many years later uh, that that became on the books Canada's summer national sport along with hockey. But it was uh, he was, you know, one of the leaders that just took the game away from Indigenous people and made fun of Indigenous people in the process and belittled the original beautiful game of the sport uh, and how it was played, which is why the future actually looks quite bright um, in terms of reclamation. Um, In the book, we talk about uh, Team Iroquois uh, and how they've participated in international cross competitions as a sovereign nation for many years now. But of course, uh, you know, not every Indigenous person would be Iroquois, right? That's not how it works. There's many nations. So we are seeing others, uh, including locally through Wapul Island First Nation, uh, like the Anishinaabe people, uh, forming their own national lacrosse organization now. And that was uh, formed by a man named Isaiah Kignaswe. And Isaiah was the... uh, you know, all as I said, placing myself in the book, um, Isaiah was the first ever Indigenous person that I ever played sports with as a teammate, and that was uh, playing AAA hockey in Chatham. And uh, I remember him so distinctly because of that. And his his dad, I remember uh, even more clearly because he would come to the games and he was this quiet, thoughtful man, and he had this long ponytail, and and uh, they looked different than us. And that was something in hockey that. 
having grown up playing this all-white sport on every team, that was uh, caught my attention, of course, you know, as a kid. And uh, But he has formed this beautiful version of the game, uh, not formed it, but re reignited it and brought it back where, you know, we're seeing it played with wooden sticks and mm-hmm. uh, in fields again. And um, it's exciting. If the pandemic hadn't hit to, uh, you know, the Anishinaabe team would have already played at international competition, but I think that's the future of it. And I would love to see more uh, nations uh, doing that again, because it, 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 that's the way the sport should be. The, the challenge will be getting the international governing bodies of lacrosse to recognize that, uh, including something like the Olympics, which right now would not be welcoming to uh, indigenous nations participating sovereignly there. So, There's going to be some battles, but that would be the ultimate goal where we would see lacrosse really reclaimed, uh, even, you know, perhaps renamed back away from lacrosse itself Mm -hmm. uh, in some versions. So, but it's really beautiful what Isaiah uh, Kiknaswe is doing there. And um, he's been such a, uh, a driver in that sport and the reclamation of it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's, I look forward to seeing what's going to happen with the sport. I have a question that I'm going to throw at you, Ian, because now all of a sudden, as you were talking about some of these things that dawned on me, how do you think your book will be received by your wider community in that part of Ontario? That is a question I have uh, uh, pondered myself many times. I I know that the, uh, you know, the local black community, the local indigenous community is thrilled to have their stories be centralized in something beyond our our borders because we are a very conservative com- community uh, in general historically um, you know i've been watching politics for many years and we've never swayed away from that um, and that doesn't mean anything in terms of how you believe in treating people but uh, we do have a foundation on conservatism here and i'm not sure how it will be received Uh, i've been myself um, targeted at times with uh, harassment or name calling or slander anytime i've challenged the uh, fighting in hockey or the masculinity or or the you know hyper masculinity as it may be or or even pointed out the importance of having discussions on racism in sport locally. So will it be received by all? No, it won't be wonderfully received by all, but that's not the point of the book. I think the point is just to, if it creates discussion, if anybody that loves sports and hasn't really considered the history of, of racism that might be there, picks it up and reads it and has an educational moment. I think that that's, going to be far more valuable than winning over every single person in the region. But uh, so far, the response in our area has been fabulous. Um, and I hope that uh, the broader community, as you say, uh, <laughs> takes it with the, that this is a history that we can learn from. It doesn't make us bad people here. And that uh, the only way to move forward better is to look at that history and come up with actionable plans that we don't continue the cycles that are uh, portrayed in the book. You know, especially the the one team you're talking about, the Colored All-Stars not being in 
the Canadian Hall of uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. I mean, that just amazes me. And and I really thought by the end of the book, you would say, oh, yes. And then they were, you know, inducted, but that hasn't happened yet. And so even that part is just kind of blows my mind. Yeah, well, we, we waited kind of. We we held on to the uh, the publication date a little bit because the, the announcement this year was supposed to come. Uh, and when it did um, in February, Black History Month of all times, um, the Canadian Baseball, Hame, Baseball Hall of Fame chose to induct one individual player. Um, and that was met with intense anger in our community because we know not only was this a great team of athletes, but the societal and cultural impact, the trickle down, the legacy is so influential. So we held on thinking that we were going to have this aha moment to publish in the end of the book uh, where we could say, yes, they finally did it. Things are looking up. They've changed. We've recognized the barriers that those athletes had to face. And despite those barriers, they still won. Uh, despite the fact that they were spit on, they had stones thrown at them. They couldn't sleep in hotels. They couldn't eat in restaurants. The referee or the umpires, I guess it is, uh, tried to steal games from them. They still won it all. And, uh, we didn't get that moment yet, uh, but we are still advocating here uh, vehemently in support of the, that team. And we hope that the we've lost all the members of the, the 1934 team, uh, but we hope that their children, uh, the ones that are still remaining there, because most of their children are in their 70s or 80s now, um, get to see it in their lifetime. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my last question is, I'm really fascinated by how you grew the Chatham-Kent Sports Network because I worked in a rural community and I just think about how amazing this process must have been and that you, you know, it's what, 11 years uh, past the, when you started it. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the process of that and where it's headed maybe. Yeah, so I love writing. I loved sports. And in 2011, I just decided to amalgamate the two. Um, and it, I guess it's kind of started, you know, as all maybe small writing projects do as a, a little blog. And uh, I, I just started, you know, reporting on things I knew, hockey teams and our local junior teams. And I'd find the basketball scores and the, the baseball scores, the really simple things that any sports reporter would do. Um, and then as it grew, um, you know, people start wanting to see their pictures online. Uh, internet uh, news outlets were really booming a decade ago. Uh, it became this spot, a community hub, I guess, where people saw an opportunity to have individual stories about their team and their kids and their, uh, their successes. So we started celebrating teams and watching those those little kids grow up and then get NCAA scholarships and things like that and hearing the letters come back saying, you know, all of your sports writing really helped me uh, get recruited and uh, we helped organizations with fundraising or, or finding, even recruiting their own players. So for me personally, it was a community building tool that just kind of continued blossoming. Um, but uh, it was also for me a spot where I got to be acquainted with the people that are in this book, uh, where I first discovered 
you know, the Fergie Jenkins. He was Fergie was one of the first people that I ever covered for the Chatham Kent Sports Network uh, back in 2011 when he had a Canadian stamp made with his likeness on it. I went to the event and talked to him there, and uh, it was the first spot that I wrote about the uh, Colored All Stars and Wilfred Boomer Harding, who's in there. Um, that's a, a monumental figure in the book, um, and all of these people that I I would have otherwise being a passive sports fan watching. Uh, you know, the Detroit Red Wings, who's my my favorite team, or the Toronto Maple Leafs, who are my cheering nemesis. But uh, seeing them on TV, you know, <laughs> I would have I would have never known about all of these people had I not um, really dug into my community. But it was also this spot where I got to uh, create my own voice. And for me, that really started with challenging sport culture, um, which, as I mentioned before, kind of has resulted in not being the most popular person at times. Um, but there's so many conversations that need to happen in sport, whether, like I said, it's about uh, hyper-masculinity or uh, gender inclusion, or in this case, racism, that without having an outlet of my own to build out my thoughts and to build out a writing style, I don't think I would have ever been ready to be hired by the hockey news, which was my dream magazine. I, I read that since the day I could hold a magazine in my hands. I had it from the, the, the black and white newspaper days of it to now this beautiful color magazine, um, and website uh, or Yahoo sports. I mean, I, I would have never had the experience to write a story, uh, and tell a story and challenge these things without, the Chatham Kent Sports Network being that spot to uh, create local conversation, respond to people, um, and learn how to research. And it just, it, it became this baby of mine that uh, I have yet to give up. And I, I, I know that with the, the book and these other writing outlets that I'm working for now, uh, it is definitely becoming a challenge to you know, keep my hands in all the different uh, pots per se, but uh, I hope that it continues for a long time to serve that that role in our community of celebrating youth and promoting youth sport and healthy, active lifestyles, but also in um, challenging those age-old views that have kept people out of sport or made people feel like they aren't welcome in a locker room. And, uh, I, yeah, it, it's, it's something I grew to love and spent a lot of time with, and, uh, I'm thankful that I did it because otherwise, um, I wouldn't have been sitting in the black Mecca museum that day researching a baseball team and getting a random email from a publishing company to write a book. So <laughs> it, it all led to one point and I'm glad that I'm here. That's fantastic. Well, Ian, we just want to thank you so much for chatting with us today. We want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy of this book when it is widely available and by Tidewater Press or probably your, if you want to name other, I assume, is it will be at Indigo and Chapters? Is that? It's, it is. Yep. I mean, you can get it everywhere. You can get your books online. Uh, I would, my first choice is always check those little independent bookstores. If you're in Canada, I know we're in uh, something like 35 cities already right now across Canada from New Brunswick over to Vancouver Island. So, you know, we are uh, it's everywhere right now. I'm getting emails every day from different uh, 
shop owners that are picking up the books. So um, look for it. You're going to find it. But uh, I would love to see the, the feedback from more people across Canada about what they learn and how this book impacts them. Great. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank Thank you you for having me. Thank you for joining us on our bookish journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Canada Reads American Style wherever you listen. You can connect with the podcast and Rebecca on Instagram at Canada Reads American Style and with Tara at On a Branch Reads. Until next time, keep reading. Keep reading.